you never know what can come from a simple idea. I had this little idea and then I followed it up and kept following it and following it. And pretty soon we had a business and then it created value. So I ask people, what do you do that maybe it doesn't take much time, but it produces a lot of value? Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am elated about today's guest. Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and Conscious Loving Ever After. The last two he co-authored with his wife and mate, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, who he has been with for 35 years. A mystery novelist with a series of five books, and his latest book, The Joy of Genius, shows how to eliminate negative thinking and bring forth true creativity. Gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Richard. Great to be with you. I am just thrilled to have you here. There's so many things we could talk about, and I wanted to dive backwards in time. This is something that I love to do with my guests and find out their why. What was it that drew you to the fields you're working in right now in human transformation? Oh, wonderful question. Well, that takes me back to the year of 1968, probably before you were born, I imagine. But in 1968, I had uh, just gotten my BA. I I wanted to write the great American novel. I I wanted to be a creative writer. I had never taken a psychology course, and I had basically zero interest in the fields of transformation or uh, counseling or anything like that. But I had the great gift one day of something just coming out of nowhere. I had gone to the University of New Hampshire one afternoon with a friend of mine, and he was in the counseling program there. And I had gone to take an uh, English class in the master's degree program in English. We both worked at the same little school for delinquent boys in New Hampshire that was very near the University of New Hampshire. So after sitting in on the English class, I realized I didn't want to take this particular class because I had been there, done that. And so I went looking for Neil and I found him in the counseling class. And I was going to go there first just to tell him that I would be waiting for him in the, you know, in the student cafeteria and all that when he finished so he could give me a lift back. And, but instead, I entered this whole other world. And 
there was about maybe 50 students and they were organized in small groups of about eight people each. And I went in and I said to the uh, professor that I wanted to talk to Neil Marinello. And uh, he said, well, um, he's in a group over there. Uh, but he said, why don't you just go ahead and join one of the groups? You know, it might be interesting to you. And um, I said, okay. And so I joined Neil's group for a minute. And these people were just going around talking about their lives, talking about what was going on. You know, one woman described this stressful thing that was going on with her husband and another one talked about a illness thing. And But they were just sharing openly about what was going on in their lives. And they were all master's degree students in counseling. And they were in this class all being clients in a counseling group. So the idea was that it was a self-led group. You didn't have a leader or anything. And the teacher would give assignments, but the, basically it was a group that was leaderless and it just met uh, every week to work on whatever they wanted to work on. I joined this group and people were talking so openly and I was just so amazed by what I saw that I, I, it was like I was watching transformation happen in front of my very eyes. And I was hooked. And immediately I knew what I, I wanted to do for my whole life. And so I signed up for the counseling program and got my master's degree in counseling. And then I went on to uh, get my doctorate at Stanford in counseling psychology and then went on to teach counseling psychology. So I've basically done nothing else except that about maybe 20 years into my university career, Oprah happened. And uh, we wrote a book called Conscious Loving and ended up on Oprah and ended up a big bestseller. And so for the next 10 years, we put her in a couple of million frequent flyer miles teaching uh, relationship workshops all over the world. And then after I wrote The Big Leap, then things shifted in that direction. My wife, by the way, as, uh, as we speak, is over teaching one of our advanced trainings for about 40 or 50 people on the other side of town. And uh, I'm going to be working with them this week myself. Uh, but she's kind of the main teacher in the family. And I, I sit home and do a lot of the writing. You, you say, you know, Oprah happened, you know, as if you, you know, described somebody who made eggs for breakfast one day. So most, most people who teach in a university setting, they do their thing, they do their research as per the requirements of the a academia, you know, the world of academia, I should say. But how did that happen? Was that on your radar? Like, how did you end up working with Oprah? And now, you know, all these years later, you've written over 40 books and you've done all these things. But that's kind of atypical from, from the course of the average professor in a university setting. Well, interestingly enough, my Oprah story has a couple of elements to it. The first time I got invited to be on Oprah, she hadn't been on the air very long. And it was already very popular and she was being very talked about and that kind of thing. But I had written my book, Learning to Love Yourself. But I was on my way to vacation in Hawaii when my secretary, I got off the plane in Hawaii and my secretary says, and this goes back to me about 1988, something like that. My secretary said, by the way, a person with a really unusual name has called from Chicago. And I said, okay, what's her name? And said, Oprah something or other. And uh, so my, my uh, secretary obviously hadn't heard of her at the time. She wasn't a big star yet. And they wanted me to come on and talk about my book, Learning to Love Yourself. And there I am standing there in Hawaii and it's about 85 degrees. And they wanted to get me on a plane the next day to go back to Chicago where it was about 15 degrees. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, 
<laughs> no. And um, so I may be the first self-help book author in history that uh, turned down Oprah the first wow. time. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the second time it happened was after our book, Conscious Loving, after we wrote that, and that came out around 1990. Well, our publicist there at, at Bantam Doubleday Dell uh, booked us on Oprah, so it was very easily done kind of thing. And so um, uh, I didn't have that much to do with it, except one day I got a call and said, show up in Chicago uh, three days. And so my wife and I went to Chicago and uh, taped the first time we were on, uh, and uh, they were very wonderful to us there. I, I even have still have the mug that they give you when you uh, when you come off after the show and they give you a little going away present. Uh, you get your little Oprah mug. And uh, so I still got mine on the shelf here. And uh, so does Katie. That's that's fantastic. Didn't say no the second time. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I want to spend a little bit of time talking about The Big Leap. I know there's there's 40 books we have to choose from, including your newest. But this this one in particular has made a big difference in my life. And I know a lot of people... Talk to us about the impetus in writing the Big Leap. Well, you know, there's an old Turkish proverb that uh, a Turkish uh, friend of mine told me. He said that in Turkey, they say, if a bald man finds a cure, he will surely first try it on himself. And so I always try my own cures on myself first. And what happened for me is, this goes back about 35 years when I first had the insight, was when my daughter was little, she was about six years old, and she'd gone away to a sleepover camp for the first time. She was going to be sleeping away for two nights at this three-day sleepover camp. And it was only like 20 minutes away by car, but, you know, it was the first sleepover camp. And uh, so uh, I was very nervous about it. And so the first day she was over there, I had just had lunch with a friend of mine. And we were talking about our work and how we excited we were and what was going on. And and I came back after that lunch and I, I was having this moment of really realizing that I'd made my big dream come true. I wanted to get my doctorate in counseling psychology and I wanted to teach at a university. And there I was, my dream had come true. And suddenly I, I was so full of good feeling about that. The next thing I knew, I was obsessively worrying about my daughter. I thought, oh, oh I bet Amanda's feeling really lonely at this uh, camp. And, oh, I better call her right now. I bet she's really miserable and feeling homesick. So I got on the phone with the director of the camp. And I, hello, this is Mr. Hendricks, Amanda's father. And uh, I, I was just wondering, uh, I got a little worried about her. And I wanted to find out how she's doing. And the director of the camp said, well, I can see her out there. She's kicking soccer balls around with a bunch of girls. Looks like she's having a pretty good time. And I said, oh, I was just worried about her. And the lady was very nice. She said, you know, you're the third parent to call today with a concern like this. And it, it's probably, you know, you're, you're worried about him, but it probably doesn't have anything to do with what kind of a time she's having. Anyway, it's very kind of her to point out, but I realized, why would I have had that thought right after I was feeling so good? I started thinking about that. Mm, I was feeling great. And then I had that thought and I was feeling <clears throat> tied up. And I realized, oh, I have a limited tolerance or how good I can feel, or how long I can feel good. And so that was my first little glimmer of insight. And I began to look and talk and uh, with my clients that I was working with as a therapist at the time. I happened to be um, 
after I graduated from Stanford, I stayed there for a year as a research psychologist and had a therapy practice. My major professor went away on sabbatical and I kind of took over his job for the year. So I had this year in right in the middle of Silicon Valley. And so I worked with a lot of really high-powered, very smart engineering kind of people from the local places like um, Hewlett-Packard and places like that. And so I got to, I started looking at their lives through the prism of therapy. And I realized that they had the same kind of problem, that they had a limited tolerance for how good they could feel or how much success they could have without messing up in some way. Because one after the other, I would, somebody would come in to, to me in counseling and say, oh, you know, I had a big win the other day at work. You know, my project got funded. And then I went home and spent all night fighting with my wife. You know, what is that? I kept wondering, why do we do that? And that's where I came up with this idea of the upper limit problem. And I started thinking about it as a, like a governor on how good we could feel. And that was the original glimmer that led me to uh, write The Big Leap. I started looking underneath the upper limit problem about what causes it and what do we, how can we fix this? And so that's all woven through The Big Leap. So let's talk about that a little bit. So what, what does cause it for a lot of people and, and what are some actionable steps people can do to start moving out of that? Well, the key thing to know is it comes out of fear. The upper limit problem is a response to a fear. And once you start understanding what those basic fears are, there's only a few of them, but once you understand them, you can begin to realize what's happening when it's happening. You know, it's just like riding a bicycle. You can't fix it once it's tilted over like this. You can only fix it when it's here. And so I want people to fix this problem here while they're riding the bicycle and uh, stay in balance that way. So the big thing you have to do is find out which one of the big fears you're operating out of. One of them I call the fear of outshining, which is a fear that's early learned in many of our lives where it's not okay to really shine and be magnificent. And uh, so there's some negative thing installed in people that said, I can't shine to my full ability because if I did, it would take love away from other people or it would take people more deserving than I. And so that's a big fear that people have. Perhaps the biggest that people labor around is the fear that there is something fundamentally wrong with them or fun fundamentally bad about them. Uh, we call it fundamentally flawed and in our seminars. And what that is, is somewhere along the line, a person has gotten negative energy beamed at them from parents or brothers and sisters or somewhere along the line, and they've taken on this feeling inside that there's something wrong with me. There's something fundamentally off about me. And I can't tell you the exact percentage of the population, but I can tell you, even working with very prominent people, that probably one out of five or so, two out of five maybe have that kind of issue, a grip on themselves. So it's very common. Another fear that a lot of people have is the fear of being disloyal to people in the past. In other words, if I let myself fully shine, I would abandon or move beyond people in my past and they would feel bad about that. And so that's a big one for many people. So I began to look underneath the upper limit problem at what those fears were. And I, I made a category of several of them. And I think it's very easy once you begin to look at them and feel them in your body which one of those you're operating out of. 
So the more you can open up and know about that, then you're able to stay on the bicycle and balance as it goes down the road rather than... Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I wonder if you could expand a little bit. There's a couple other major concepts from the Big Leap where you talk about one's zone of excellence versus zone of genius. Could you spend a few moments and, and share with us about those? Yes. Well, many people, well, I break it down into four zones. Many people spend far too much of their time in what I call the zone of incompetence, where you're doing stuff you're not good at. And so that eats up a lot of time and energy. A second zone that people get trapped in is the zone of competence, where you're doing things you're good at, but somebody else could do them just as well. The third zone, big, important subject, because we call that the zone of excellence. And that's where you're doing stuff you're really good at, and people really like you for doing it, and you're probably making good money doing it. And it's kind of where you're shining. The problem with that is if you stay in that zone too long, you don't tap that fourth zone. I used to call it the zone of genius. I now call it the genius spiral because it's not a zone. It's not a place. It's an it's a evolving thing. And so um, once you get out of the zone of excellence, you get onto the, the genius spiral, which is this wonderful up-leveling of your life where you're constantly asking yourself the question, what do I most love to do? And how could I do more of what I most love to do? And how can I make my biggest contribution to, le- to life and to other people by doing what I most love to do? And so these questions begin to enliven and enlighten your life. I call them wonder questions. When you ask yourself, hmm, how could I expand the amount of love in my life? It's a wonder question because it doesn't have an exact answer to it. There might be a thousand ways, but once you start opening that question, the wonderful E.E. Cummings poem from many years ago said that uh, it's always the beautiful question that gets the beautiful answer. You know, the better you can open up to your key core wonder questions in life, the more you can open your life to the magnificence that's just right there. You're only a breath away from it. So there's so much about this I love, and I definitely want to come back to the wonder questions. So are the wonder questions the path for somebody, for example, who has that good job, they're making the money that they thought they wanted to make, they're doing what they went to school for, but there's a part of them that just doesn't feel like they've tapped everything they're capable of. So talk to us how to get from that point, because that's so many people. And more, fewer people, I think, that are in 
a zone, a lesser zone where they're not happy or they're not earning a decent living. But for those people that are doing well and want to take that, that next step, what are some of those other wonder questions and things that you can do? Well, I appreciate you highlighting that, Dr. Richard, because a lot of the people you and I talk to are in their excellence zone. You know, they're doing quite well and, and we don't want to mess with that. That's a wonderful thing. So nobody needs to feel bad about it. It's just that if you stay too long in your zone of excellence, you get stale. And if you stay way too long, it can actually make you sick. I've worked with probably, I'm going to take an off the wall guess, but I probably work with 50 professionals, doctors, lawyers, CPAs, who were at that midlife crisis point in in their 40s. And their stories were a little bit different, but they all said a version of the following thing. It's like, I'm really at the top of my profession. I'm making great money. I'm in the right clubs. My kids love the vacations. And I feel like if I keep going like this, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. It's a common thing to wake up one day at age 40 or 42 and say, oh my gosh, the personality that got me here is not the personality that's going to get me to from 40 to 80. And so I think that life has a way of kind of bringing it up to our focus, especially when you, I was talking to somebody the other day who was 59 and I was telling him, every time you approach a zero birthday, certain things awaken in you. You know, it's like in your 30s, you're kind of finding your life. You're experimenting with different businesses. You're making a profession work. You're kind of getting grooved in and finding your life. In your 40s, it's a lot about building your life. It's a lot about the right kind of hires and the right kind of fires and right kind of what are you doing to maximize your your business. In your 50s, things shift a little bit because by then you probably are in your zone of excellence. Then an issue becomes the way we say it in uh, Conscious Loving Ever After, which is our book for midlife relationships. What we say is that every breath you take after the age of 50 is a choice between stagnation and creativity. Stagnation or creativity. So are you breathing into the expansion of your creativity or are you breathing to accommodate the fact that you're stagnating. You're, and, and then it gets kind of even more pronounced at that 60-0 birthday because from then on, like the uh, great um, developmental psychologist um, Eric Erickson said, uh, that every moment from 60 on is a choice between integrity or despair. Hmm. Integrity or despair. So integrity meaning being right with your life, being in a place of wholeness, accepting the wholeness of yourself, being aligned, speaking honestly, listening to what people have to say. So that kind of inner integrity that chases away depression. And I've seen it clinically here, I don't know how many umpteen times, but people come in in a state of depression and you know they've had the medical stuff checked and everything, but by the time they get to me, they've decided that it's not about the medicine they're taking, it's about something else. And so invariably, there's some way they're out of alignment with integrity. And that doesn't mean they've done something illegal, it just means that 
they're out of touch with some feeling that they have, or they've got something they need to communicate to another person and they haven't been able to do that yet. And so, you know, we always have to start with the source in ourselves. Get as close to the source as you possibly can to heal our issues. Because so many people look way outside themselves and don't hmm, make this move in here. But this move can't be made in a state of blame. It's got to be a wonder. Hmm. It can't be a, oh, why am I doing this thing? Why am I doing my upper limit problem? That attitude is not helpful. It's only in the wonder, hmm, hmm. A wonder question is always a question you really want to know the answer to, and you really don't know the answer to it. That's a perfect wonder question. So give us a couple more examples of wonder questions, and then I want to transition into your newest book, The Joy of Genius, because this is, this is gold. A good wonder question would be, hmm, what of my activities, when I do them, puts me in a timeless space? Hmm, where do I go timeless when I'm doing things? You know, like for me, I, you mentioned I like to write mystery novels in my spare time. And uh, I didn't start doing that till I was 65 years old. And I basically now published, uh, I think I'm about to publish my ninth one this coming year. And so uh, it's been a big, whole lot of fun for me. When I'm doing that, time just goes, I mean, it completely disappears. I can look up at the clock and realize I've been sitting there for an hour. And where did it go? You know, so that's a key. Timelessness is a key to genius. Look for those things where you feel an expansion of time, where time disappears. So, hmm, where does that occur in my life? That's a beautiful wonder question. Another is, hmm, what do I do that produces the greatest amount of contribution for time spent? Sitting right over here in 2003, I hatched an idea for a business, the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which Stephen Simon and I then started in the year 2004. And soon we had five or 6,000 members around the world who were getting our DVDs. And pretty soon we had 20,000 people around the world who were getting our DVDs. And so we tapped into something brand new. And it turned out we sold the business for close to $10 million. And so it, it created quite a bit of value out of one single moment over here. One morning after meditation, I thought, oh, you know what? Stephen and I have been trying to pitch Hollywood on making inspirational movies, like we were pitching them on the idea of making conversations with God and uh, illusions by Richard Bach and other inspirational classics. And we got thrown out of more offices in Hollywood, you know, oh, people don't want that kind of stuff. People want comic book movies, you know, they don't care about relationship. You know? And so um, they don't care about spirituality. And so um, Stephen and I got very frustrated, but over here, sitting right here after meditation, I said, oh, let's hot wire around Hollywood. We'll just go to film festivals and get films that nobody else is, is touching. And we'll, we'll get a subscriber base and then we'll send the movies out to our subscribers and have a new movie each month. So anyway, it turned out to work fabulously well. We're still in the business today, by the way. 
Uh, if you go to spiritualcinemacircle.com, you can see that we're still, we've now uh, had the pleasure of uh, introducing, I believe, 600 plus new filmmakers to the world over the past 15 years or so. So we're very proud about that. And interestingly enough, a lot of the people who started with us in the year 2004 are still members. So uh, it's a very loyal group of people. So anyway, I mentioned that because you never know what can come from a simple idea. I had this little idea and then I followed it up and kept following it and following it. And pretty soon we had a business and then it created value. So I ask people, what do you do? that maybe it doesn't take much time, but it produces a lot of value. You know what I've heard more often than not, and we've built it into our program here. An executive told me many, many years ago when I was on site at a big uh, company in um, Midwest, I I would ask executives at the time, I would say, what's one thing that if you did it would really make a difference in your daily life here in work? And almost everybody would say some version of, you know, if I just had 10 minutes to sit and think now and then without kind of interruptions. And so we began to start this 10-minute creativity program. And here we, we start it in a very specific way. I'd invite your folks to uh, try this at home. So go in a room by yourself and simply meditate for 10 minutes on the following question, wonder question. Hmm, what is my true genius? Hmm, what is my true genius? And just ask that question out loud and in your mind for 10 minutes. Don't focus on the answers. Focus on the question. Just plant the question in yourself. I promise you that will have profound effects because what it will do is we'll start liberating ideas. I always say genius doesn't come forth until you ask it. It's why there's all these fairy tales about somebody rubbing a a bottle and then the genie comes forth because you kind of have to massage your genius a little bit. You have to work with it. You have to ask it. It's often not obvious. And so you have to invite it forth. But I promise you, go in a room by yourself for 10 minutes. You'll be amazed at the results. It's a perfect segue is we're asking the genius question to talk about your newest book, The Joy of Genius. So take us through, you know, we we talked about the spiral, the genius spiral. So talk to us about this new book and what people are going to get out of it when they read this. I wanted to show you a couple of elements. Many of you have seen the cover of The Big Leap, which features a, uh, a leaping goldfish. But here we have the leaping goldfish, but it turns into a bird up here. And so There are lots of good graphics in the book, but one of the key ones is uh, the graphic for the genius spiral. It's part of the uh, activity part of the book. And so what the joy of genius is all about is there's something that you can do on a regular basis, even moment by moment basis, that when you do it, it unlocks more creativity and also gradually eliminates negative thinking. Negative thinking, Dr. Richard, I don't know if you found this in your work, but negative thinking is one of the most pervasive things that keeps people operating in their upper limit because 
their negative thinking keeps inoculating themselves over and over again in that way of thinking. You know, once a person says, oh, I'm too old to get involved with my genius. You know, that's such a crazy thing. I hear it all the time. But once a person gets locked into that way of thinking, you know, it's such a negative way to think. It just limits every moment of their lives. And so I'm always after, I ask people, change one single negative thought first. Just find one. It could be, I'm too old. Or it could be, I don't have enough education to whatever. Uh, So just find one and change that to start with. Just change the cannot to a can. And watch what happens as a result of that. Because once you start tweaking the machinery of your mind, your mind lights up and says, oh, I like this. You know, and then pretty soon uh, you find that positive thinking is much more fun and profitable and productive than negative thinking is. Well, that's for sure. And there's a lot of research that talks about the physiological benefits of positive thinking versus negative thinking. So absolutely that on point there. Gay, what, what are some of the other key tenets that people are going to take away from this book? Well, the book is a lot about how to learn to tell the difference between the things that you have control over and the things that you do not have control over. And there's a very powerful message in that. If you look back a couple of thousand years, one of humankind's first self-help books was by a, a philosopher named Epictetus. And the very first line in, in many translations goes something like this. The secret of happiness is knowing that there are some things you can control and some things you cannot control. Now, today, I bet there'll be millions of people who stand up in a uh, 12-step group somewhere and say some version of the serenity prayer, which is a lot about letting go of control of things that you don't have any control over so you can focus on the things you do have control Mm -hmm. over. It's so important because in human life, almost everybody grows up with a problem in that area. They, they grow up, and I myself too, trying to control things that we don't really have any control over. And that eats up a tremendous amount of energy. For example, if you're trying to control whether people like you or not, you know, if you're concerned with that, that takes your concern o- away from what I can do that actually might be- make people like me. You know, so we get all tied up in our head about those kinds of things and then forget to do the very simple kinds of things. There's a great John Prine song that says, it's a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown. That's the way that the world goes round. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so one thing, one little bit starts going wrong and then you start amplifying that. And uh, it's like when I used to be overweight, I was, I was real fat as a kid. I had a lot of problems. Uh, uh, I got taken around to lots of different medical specialists because I was the only fat person in a family of skinny people. So I was eating the same thing they were eating and I was getting fat. So later they found all sorts of problems with my glands and all that. But in the first, I was just fat for a long time. And I found that my obesity was another form of upper limit problem later on that I would, even after I lost the weight, 
I still had the mechanism in me where if things started going well and I started feeling good, I would often eat something that made me feel bad. And I just know that in my physiology, if I eat stuff with a bunch of sugar in it, I go down like a rock and it makes me sleepy and tired and everything. And so what would I do? I would get to feeling really good and then I eat a box of cookies. (sighs) And I realized I was using food as an upper limit problem. And so that was a big learning for me that led to a whole whole year of my life where I decided that I was only going to eat foods that I really had never eaten before. And so I discovered things like vegetables and fruits and things like that. (laughs) What a concept. That's so funny. Uh, Gay, but before I I move into our closeouts, is there, do you have anything coming up, event, uh, something that you want me to highlight or that you'd like to talk about rather before we move to close? Well, we do our big trainings here in uh, Ojai, Southern California, twice a year. We do them in the summer and we do them in the winter. So probably the best thing people could do is just look on our website at hendrix.com and they'll find our whole list of uh, training schedules. And we also do uh, other things too, like uh, uh, we do a couples course up in the Bay Area once a year and some things like that. So you can get the whole schedule at uh, hendrix.com. Okay, and we'll we'll show that. uh, We'll have that in the show notes as well. Very cool. All right, excellent. All right, well, Gay, this has been an absolute blast for me and, and just filled with information that I know everybody is getting a lot out of. As you know, everybody who comes on my show, I have one single question I always ask as we're wrapping up, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Mm, Great question. Well, at our trainings, we have this little wristband, and on the wristband, it says, breathe, move, love. And why it says that is because anytime you're feeling stuck, Take a moment to just take a few big, easy breaths. Or even when you're feeling good, take a few easy breaths to amplify that feeling in your body. It says breathe, move, love, because after you take that breath, then move your body around a little bit. Keep your body in motion. Open up to that natural flow of energy. And the third thing is love. Love as much as you can from wherever you are. You're not going to always feel lovable toward yourself, but you can always love yourself for not being able to love yourself. And in that moment, you become very different. I became very different the moment I took that first breath of love for myself and realized, oh, okay, I'm not a -a 24-hour-a-day improvement project, failed improvement project. What I am is an organically growing human being with a pure consciousness and a whole lot of mental capacity. And I started celebrating myself rather than censuring myself. And that turned everything around for me. Since that happened way back in the 60s, I've been on a positive upward path of growth ever since. And now it's led to 40 years of magnificent relationship with my wife, Katie. And uh, all sorts of uh, good times that are based on doing what I most love to do. So that's my, I guess my final big piece of advice is look for everybody to do what you most love to do and do more of that. I love that. Fantastic. Gay, where can people connect with you? Well, Hendricks.com is a good place and H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. Also, 
uh, all of our e-courses and things like that are housed at heartsinharmony.com, heartsinharmony.com. And so you can go over there and check out all the different uh, offerings. We have courses for singles and couples, and we have a weight loss program. And uh, so I I think you'd uh, be uh, interested to see some of the uh, different range of activities we do there. Perfect. And for those of you behind the wheel, we got you covered. Everything Gay Hendricks will be in the show notes for his episode at thedailyhelping.com, as well as in the Daily Helping app available in the Google Play and iTunes stores. Okay, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Dr. Richard. Awesome. And thanks to each and every one of you as well. Thanks for checking out the show. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 